So if Wittgenstein provides the philosophical point of departure, a philosophical point of departure for monistic ways of producing knowledge, one branch of this kind of monistic knowledge production, particularly in the social sciences, belongs to this gentleman, Max Weber. Now, Weber, interestingly, was not someone who thought of himself as primarily a methodologist, even though he wrote some things on methodology. And mostly he was concerned to just sort of get on with it and do the work that he wanted to do. So his moments of unfettered methodological or close to philosophical reflection on what it is that he's doing don't come along very often. The 1904 essay on objectivity that he wrote with Zombard and Jaffe is one of those moments because it is an editorial statement when they took over uh, a journal. And when they took over the journal, they wanted to lay down a set of programmatic considerations for why and how they were going to operate. And so it was one of those moments where Weber is kind of encouraged to and like gives himself permission to just kind of reflect on these things and speculate a little bit. So particularly the second half, or second part, it's not really half, it's actually most of the essay, but the second part of that, which he wrote by himself rather than having written it and then letting his co-editors sort of take a, a stab at it, he really is able to lay down what it would look like to do this kind of research. And though he doesn't use the term monism, I think that the easiest way to make sense out of what Weber's trying to do when it comes to ideal types is to think about them as a monistic way of producing knowledge. So an ideal type, the central thing that Weber wants to develop in that essay, is a deliberate oversimplification of things that exist, so drawing out their logic, drawing out the kind of core of how they are put together. So these are not ideals. He says they're utopias. So they are not simply descriptions. But if I take something like the rational actor, the individual rational actor, then I can draw out in a way, what would that look like in kind of a frictionless space where there was just, I just want to talk about the key principles of what it means to be a rational actor. Let me kind of draw that out of anything empirical and create that as a separate concept. But, Weber points out, these are not just pure types. An ideal type is also grounded in a set of cultural commitments that we, the knowers, bring into the process. So, yes, they're abstractions, but they're also idealized. They're also the elaboration of ways in which we perceive things, ways in which things are meaningful for us. So the entire approach of ideal types is rooted in that set of concrete locations and transactions that an individual knower has as part of a research community, as part of a culture. 
And what they are trying to do by generating ideal types is to say, I have a set of culturally grounded values, but knowledge is not just the assertion of my culturally grounded values. Knowledge is something I do with those values to make them into useful instruments that I can use to actually disclose something interesting about the subject that I'm interested in and about the cases and the instances that I am researching. So it is not the case that the ancient world didn't have an economy until we started noticing it, but it is the case that we didn't care before our own value shifted and we started noticing that, hey, actually, there are records here that look an awful lot like commercial transactions. Huh. Suddenly we start thinking about the ancient world differently. So ideal typification is a, a systematic and rigorous way of taking our concerns and our values and turning them into instruments that we can use to show us interesting and important things about other cases. So that's kind of how ideal types work. So what does it actually mean to engage in doing an ideal type to make one? Well, the logical process that Weber lays out is something like you start off in a sphere of values. You're a located individual. You're within language games and forms of life in Wittgenstein's terms. So you're not just an autonomous Cartesian subject. You are located concretely someplace. That sphere of values is often ambiguous, so there is some kind of stand-taking, some kind of clear set of commitments that anchors things. These value commitments position on things. So if I am really committed to notions of individual liberty, there are probably other kinds of values floating around in the same setting where I could take slightly different positions, but by taking a position on individual liberty and using that as a foundation of my analysis, that is taking a stand within that sphere of values. In order to turn it into an ideal type, I have to formalize it. I have to logically clean it up produce axioms, boil things down. This allows me then to do an analytical depiction of particular kinds of processes. So Weber thinks here of things like the abstract model of the market. One might think of the abstract concept of democracy or democratic election. Right. Actual elections and actual markets don't look like the abstract model exactly, but that's the point. What the abstract model does is it just isolates the logic of the situation, kind of brings it out so we can examine it abstractly, and then use it to figure out what's going on in actual concrete cases. Because what we're supposed to do in actual concrete cases is then we apply these analytical depictions, these formalized models, and the application of models to specific historical instances gives us, drumroll please, facts. A fact for Weber comes at the end of the process of applying a model. Facts are wrapped up with the kinds of models which are logically purified versions of the values that we have. Those are what give us factual claims at the end of the day. So if I have a particular ideal type about bureaucratic rationalization, and I take a look at a particular 
instance of a bureaucracy and I notice the places where the bureaucracy on the ground, the actual one, deviates from the model and does so in ways that I judge as a researcher to be causally significant for explaining the outcomes, then what I have just done is I have used my ideal type derived from my values to produce some facts about this particular situation and produce a factic explanation of an outcome by looking at the ways in which the situation on the ground differs from the ideal type model. So that is what we are supposed to be doing, Weber says, with these ideal types, and that is how we produce knowledge. Think of something like Ken Waltz's spare model of the international system, if you're familiar with this model from international studies. And what people who don't understand that it's an ideal type and treat it as a hypothesis try to do is they try to gather evidence to show that either there isn't as much balancing or states aren't quite as anarchic as Waltz thinks they are, etc., etc. All of which is sort of beside the point because what Waltz is saying is here is a model of the international system. And this model shows you certain kinds of dynamics. And then to use it, you would talk about individual cases and examine the extent to which those cases do or do not approximate the model. Deviations from the model are part of the finding of the situation. So that's the way Weber would suggest you use an ideal type. Now this, what I've just laid out here, is kind of the abstract process of the logically how the ideal type actually is, uh, is, is put together and functions. The actual process of doing an ideal type is a bit messier, kind of looks more like this, right? You have a lot of data, you, know, you sort of read everything which Weber had, you know, read pretty much everything. Uh, you then consult other literature because you're reading primary stuff, but you're also reading secondary stuff. You're embedded in a research community, so you're going to have to know what the rest of the research community is doing as well. Somewhere between those two, you end up with categories or typology, ways of characterizing particular situations, different kinds of ideal types that help to illuminate them. So think here, for instance, of, say, Weber's three types of authority. You've got charismatic authority and traditional authority and rational legal authority. And each of those modes of authority have different bases and different characteristic ways of proceeding. What's interesting is after you've got that particular categorization, then when you start looking at actual cases, none of them really look like they fit exactly within just one. They look like interesting tensions between the two. So here we have rational legal forms of authority and a preference for something like a rational election. And then we have charismatic forms of authority in which it's the charismatic individual gets to proclaim that the rules are suspended because of their you know, being touched by, by divinity. But if you put those two things together, you get something weird and you actually get something that describes some of the dynamics of contemporary democratic elections where people claim mandates based on their electoral success. Because a mandate is kind of a charismatic claim. I should be able to do these things because I'm somehow touched and superior and, and there's some special quality that I have. Whereas from a rational legal point of view, it's like, yeah, you got 52% of the vote. But it's okay, you know, you have, that's enough technically because now you are in charge according to these rational standards. So there's something that is usefully gained by taking a case, say, of a particular election and re-describing it as a configuration of these ideal typical notions. And most of the interesting work 
in ideal typical analysis actually comes in this configurational way of looking at tensions between different kinds of ideal types. Here's the market on the one hand with its particular kinds of logic. Here are notions of religion on the other hand with their particular kind of logic when it comes to questions of value. When you put those two things together and look at the tensions between them, then you start to get some interesting explanations for some of the dynamics that are going on in particular situations, in particular cases where there's tension between these two kinds of values. Only after having done all of this or in the process of doing all of this, sometimes that's where your values come out. That's where you discover that you as an analyst actually do have positions and you actually do have value commitments that have been informing kind of tacitly what you're doing. The rootedness of ideal types in value commitments does not imply that everybody is always 100% aware of what their value commitments are. Sometimes it takes a process to externalize those things. Sometimes you don't quite recognize it until you finished writing the study, in which case it shows up either in the introduction or the conclusion or in the preface when you finally figure out what ties the whole thing together, right? That is the kind of process, the actual process that I think Weber's approach points to. But what's key here is that in order to do ideal typical analysis, you've got to have these ideal types derived from values because these become the baseline that you use to figure out not just what actually happened, but to figure out what might have happened otherwise. So ideal typical analysis invariably revolves around imagined counterfactuals. So what would have happened if certain patterns of regulation had been different. Well, the only way we can actually evaluate that is by using ideal types that will allow us to extrapolate what these hypothetical alternative possibilities would be and then have a conversation among researchers or among knowers about those counterfactuals and use the ideal types themselves to help sort of adjudicate what the outcomes would have been. That's how we zero in on what's actually responsible, what's actually causal in a particular situation. So to use an example that Weber likes to, to go into elsewhere. Um, suppose that Cleopatra had not been as attractive and Antony had not decided to marry her. Would that have changed the entire course of Western civilization? And you can, by engaging in ideal typical analysis, suggest that there are other things going on that maybe that particular alliance between Antony and Cleopatra was not the most significant thing, that something else might have occurred. A more contemporary version of that, or closer at least to the contemporary version of that, would be something like the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the First World War. Would the First World War have occurred without that particular assassination? And the general consensus seems to be among historians, who Weber would argue are always working with ideal types, even if they're not explicit about it, that there's enough other stuff going on in that situation that if it hadn't been that spark, it would have been a different spark. Something else would have set it off. So in that sense, the actual event is less important to the account than the it was something that triggered these processes and kind of went from there. So counterfactuals come out, and imagine counterfactuals come out of these use of ideal types is very different than the way comparison with alternatives works in the dualist world, and particularly in the neopositivist world, 
Because in the neo-positivist world, a counterfactual is just the perfect comparative case, right? a case that is like a, a, another case on every factor except the variable of interest. And then that becomes the thing you use as sort of a concrete practical comparison between the two of them. If you are dealing with ideal types, eh, that's not the way it goes. Instead, what counterfactuals do is they help the community of researchers decide what's causal and what's not by making explicit certain kinds of assumptions that we are making about plausibility and necessity. So you use ideal types to structure the scholarly conversation. And that, for Weber, is the way that knowledge gets produced. And for lots of monistic researchers, that is the way knowledge gets produced. We develop these models, and we use the models as guideposts for these discussions that are conducted on counterfactuals to be able to figure out what was actually important with producing an outcome. You know, what would have been different if World War I had started by a different spark? Okay, well, depending on the question that we ask, yes, the particular event, the particular assassination does matter because of certain trajectories. However, would there have been something like the First World War if you define that as involving these two blocks arrayed against each other? Eh, one might say, you know what, given the alliance patterns, given the trajectories of things, kind of looked like we were heading that way anyway, so any spark would have actually done it. But that means that the World War I that might have happened without that spark of the Franz Ferdinand assassination, but instead a different assassination might have had some differences in certain characteristics, not in others. Again, all of that is the sort of thing that is made possible by having a set of shared ideal types, instruments that we use for assessing these things. Now, as in realism, what then becomes tremendously important for an analyticist approach, for an, for an ideal typical way of producing knowledge, are these configurations, case-specific factors, and how they are configured with, how they occur in sequence with one another. There is pretty much always more than one ideal type involved because we don't live in a world in which we actually have situations that directly 100% approximate only one ideal type. There's always mixes and blends. The real world is messy, and because the world is messy, then we need to have, the argument would go, we need to have pure, more refined instruments for helping us make sense of it. The difference is that if you are doing this from an ideal typical perspective, the ideal types are rooted in sets of value orientations. They do not have to be vetted in a laboratory before they can serve an explanatory purpose. Instead, they serve an explanatory purpose by being refined and, and shared within a community of researchers. Because of the multiplicity of these ideal types, it is often the case that when we are engaged in this sort of analysis, we're looking at the way that concretely located social actors mediate the tensions between, say, rational, legal, and uh, charismatic modes of authority, or market versus religious ways of organizing particular values. And we're looking to see how concretely situated individuals make sense out of those things. So, and what do they do? So here we have particular occasions, you know, ceremonial speeches that heads of government give after elections, all right? How do we see in that speech the 
tensions between, on the one hand, notions of the nation and the unity of the nation, and on the other hand, the partisan attachment to a particular party. So how do those tensions get mediated in particular speeches? Then that becomes the result. That's the finding. That's what you use the ideal type to do, to sort of zero in on these things. What we've been talking about so far, what I've been talking about so far, is what you might call monist phenomenalism, right? Because the underlying bet here is that you can't really know anything about stuff beyond possible experience. Ideal types are just tools. They're instruments. They're ways of generating knowledge. But the knowledge is always of things that are observable and detectable and measurable. So the ideal types themselves are conceptual tools, and that means that they themselves are not elements of knowledge. They are ways of generating knowledge. What this means is that you can't use ideal types to critique things. An ideal type of Christianity may be helpful with explaining certain things, but it could not be used to evaluate a set of existing institutions or organizations or individuals in terms of whether they are actually Christian or not to use an example that Weber draws on at one point in the objectivity essay. To put this in a slightly different phrase that Weber uses elsewhere, what you can do with ideal types is clarify values, but not correct values. One of the limitations of monist phenomenalism is that it takes a set of value orientations and stands on it and can't really criticize those value orientations, not directly anyway. There may be ways that the articulation of an ideal type from a set of value commitments might lead to some greater reflection on whether that was an appropriate value commitment at some point in the future, but that doesn't happen at the moment of its actual use. This limitation of monist phenomenalism is what leads to the other major approach to monist knowledge production in which thinkers and critics suggest that we need to move beyond this instrumentality of knowledge and instead of simply treating these abstract notions as tools we have to treat them as themselves objects that can be critiqued yes knowledge expresses a set of values so they're on the same page as the ideal typical folks or the monist phenomenalists. But, these critics would argue, the set of values and what goes into that set of values is itself socially determined and not just by accidents of history. There are systematic marginalization and domination patterns that elevate certain kinds of values and not others. And that social determination the critics would argue, is key to actually thinking about what it means to produce knowledge. It's not just sort of a flat uh, equality of different values, that that set itself is socially determined and is determined by questions of hierarchy, questions of power. That language game, sure, language game names the status epistemically of what we're seeing, but not necessarily the content. Different groups can play different kinds of games. And the game that is played by the powerful and the elite sanctifies a certain set of values and a certain kind of perspective on social reality, but not others. 
and that itself, the critics would argue, is not an innocent thing. Forms of life as a notion points to the fact that knowledge has social foundations and that there's concrete involvements that underlie the knowledge claims that we make and sustain them, sure, but it doesn't unpack what those social foundations actually are. And the critics would say we need to, we have a responsibility to unpack those foundations in order to actually generate valid knowledge. All of the four approaches we've been talking about have their own understanding of validity. And their own understanding in particular of factic validity, right? They're all broadly scientific approaches. They just differ as to what needs to be done in order to produce validity. So for neopositivists, validity is about generating cross-case covariations and then subsuming cases under them. You know a claim is valid because it is reflected in the empirics in the data. The key point of validity for a realist has to do with the way in which the mechanisms and powers were evaluated and vetted, so laboratories or some sort of research tradition. With ideal typification, validity comes from those ideal typical notions being rooted in sets of cultural values and being logically rooted in sets of cultural values. For the critics, the root of knowledge in social foundations means that we have to become more aware of those foundations. We need to become more reflexive about those foundations. And that's what will guarantee the validity of our knowledge claims. There is, the critics point out, an objectivity effect of shared assumptions. If we all share certain assumptions about things, we have a tendency to think of those shared assumptions not simply as something that is intersubjectively characteristic of us, but just as something that is necessarily true. It's just there. There is, in particular, a similarity of social origin, they point out, that leaves people with a certain set of tacit values, and those values can then shape scientific knowledge in ways that may elude our immediate understanding. So the fact that the wealthy practitioners of biological science, and in particular those that were practicing botany, right, that they approached things as collectors, as collectors of curiosities and putting those curiosities together. And that was a shared set of values for relatively wealthy individuals who thought of plants as something that were cultivated and, and grown in sort of an ornamental garden type way. That this, critics would argue, affects the way that the science of botany evolves because it has this kind of collecting mindset to it. How different would it have been if the folks who were generating the science of botany were coming out of a farm perspective, right, in which the growth of plants was not about collecting them and showing them off ornamentally, but about something else. So the shared assumptions that are made, shared assumptions in social origin, ways in which people are socialized, affects and shapes the sort of knowledge claims that that group finds to be valid. Similarities of experiences based on race and gender can shape the ways in which we think things ought to be. The things that appear obvious are obvious because of these kinds of similarities of experience. Remember, if ideal types are derived from sets of value commitments, 
the sets of value commitments that we have may also be shaped by the patterns of socialization that we are engaged in. So it may make a huge difference and be really important if the gender or racial balance of a particular scientific field is remarkably skewed in one direction. That means that there are perspectives that are not being considered because those perspectives are not even being allowed to enter the conversation in the first place. Now, this is not about individual persons. This is about social locations. It's not about who. It's about what, where. It's about what kinds of assumptions are being treated, taken seriously. What kinds of assumptions are really being acted on? Where particular observers stand when they articulate those assumptions? So it's about social positioning and not about the simple question of, oh, I am a white man and therefore I think these things. It is instead, here are the positions, here is the social position of whiteness and maleness in this particular society. And those two are on top of certain kinds of social hierarchies. And this leads to a very particular kind of point of view. And it is that point of view that the critics argue needs to be called to attention and perhaps transformed. And the transformation of that starts with reflexivity. Right? Trying as best as possible to know where it is that you stand from what perspective you are operating when you are making claims. Know or come to know what kinds of assumptions ground your theories and concepts, the ways in which you organize experience. The pioneering version of this, perhaps, comes in feminist practice and feminist pedagogical practice where feminists started to use a technique called consciousness raising in which individuals would compare and share experiences and then talk around those experiences and through those experiences pointing out similarities articulating the ways in which there may be something like a common set of quote-unquote female values which have been delegitimated within a particular society. This is not about a biological connection between femaleness and a set of values. It's about using the location, women using the location, their location in a social hierarchy to articulate an alternative perspective on those dominant values. Now, you cannot know this perfectly, right? This is not about simple, transparent, oh, I think about it for a second, and gosh, now I know what my values are, and I know exactly what I'm doing. But what you can do is you can strive to become aware of the value orientations that you have and their location in broader sets of social hierarchies through dialogue. One of the major complaints that reflexive, critical theorists level at existing dominant modes of hegemonic knowledge are precisely that certain voices never make it into the conversation. Yet, the modes of knowledge production at the center and on the top of the hierarchy claim to be objective, but they haven't actually looked at all of these other kinds of considerations because certain modes of knowing are kind of ruled out ex ante. 
So sometimes this can be gender, race within one's own society. Sometimes it's about different societies. We dismiss modes of knowing as being quote unquote primitive because they don't look like the kind of sciences that we would like them to look. And those dismissals, the critics would point out, are wrapped up with our own understanding of what it means to do science. And that perhaps we need to be a little less confident in the sets of consensuses that we have come to because of our own positions in those social hierarchies. So how do you get around this? The main way you get around this for the critics is by making sure that when you are engaged in doing analysis of any sort, explanation of any sort, that you are locating your perspective not at the hegemonic center, but instead you are locating your perspective at one or another marginalized place in the social hierarchy. Several different kinds of places to start. We have the one that was preferred by this gentleman over here, which is that you start with the workers, perhaps the workers of the world, maybe they should unite. And by looking at things from the perspective of the alienated laborer, you gain a very different understanding of how capitalism works. And so that early foundation in questions of alienation for Marx is then what turns into the broader systematic accounts in, in the various volumes of capital. But the perspective is not the perspective of the owner. It's the, not the perspective of the, of the labor boss. It is the perspective of the worker that grounds the approach. And interestingly, of course, Marx himself is not a worker. So he doesn't, further to show you that it's about perspective and not necessarily about individual attributes. You can adopt a perspective without necessarily being a member of that group as long as you are sensitive about it and you take care. Or you can write from a perspective that you actually happen to inhabit, which is what this gentleman does for the most part. This is Karl Mannheim. And Mannheim is one of the people who starts and invents what we now have as the sociology of knowledge. And Mannheim's claim was that intellectuals occupy a weird position within social hierarchies because they are in some ways set aside from the ordinary social hierarchy, which allows intellectuals to not be completely free-floating, but to gain a broader understanding of how the different elements of society related to each other. So if you theorize from the position of the intellectuals, you then may be able to come up with a broader set of unities that can actually put together different groups rather than taking one perspective or another. Contrast this to, say, the Antonio Gramsci version of what it means to write as an intellectual, which is to say intellectuals play a particular role within the class structure, and to write as an intellectual, you can either write as an intellectual who is involved in knitting together a hegemonic project and creating domination, or one that is working to contest that by giving the masses tools to use that they can use to mobilize against the dominant hierarchy. So either way, right, so you've got this whole idea of adopting a particular position and that gives you something different. You know society differently from a different kind of position within it. So this is Sandra Harding, and we read some of her work earlier. And Sandra Harding writes from a feminist perspective, 
adopts the perspective of women, not a particular woman, but the feminized position, if you will, and suggests from there that we know better because we are operating from the bottom of the hierarchy. We look from the bottom and see the operations of power in ways that those at the core, at the center, might not notice. So that kind of feminist position may be a better way to know what's going on in a gender-divided society. Similar argument is made by W.E.B. Du Bois when it comes to questions of racial minorities. Du Bois' famous way of expressing this is that they, if you're raised as someone who is black in a race-divided society where black is frowned upon, then you develop a double consciousness, right? A way of understanding both the dominant from its own perspective, but also your own experience, which is the experience of being dominated. And that there is not just a moral privilege, but an epistemic privilege to that position of double consciousness. So you know better because you're able to see more clearly. Common to all of these kinds of approaches Right? This notion of starting at the margin is that it has an epistemic power. You know better because you are not subject to the kinds of objectivity illusions that the center is subject to. So marginality is a better place to begin when it comes to knowing things. You put these two together, you put these sorts of things we've been talking about, these criticisms together, and you come up with a position that I think is best characterized as monist transfactualism, just like the ideal type stuff we were talking about earlier in this lecture, it's still monist because mind and world co-occur. They still co-constitute each other at a very deep level. But monist transfactualism is, of course, transfactual, right? Deep structures shape the activities of knowledge production. And these deep structures, though, are not realist. They're not like really out there in the sense that you could stick them in a lab and measure them and poke at them and prod at them and figure out what their unrealized potentials were, not in quite the same way. Instead, what reflexivity does is allows us to see the influence of these deeper structures, these broader patterns of organization in our daily activities. We find traces of the structure on our own lives. So Du Bois and Harding both write from positions of having experienced being at the margin and using that as evidence of the broader marginalization patterns. So the approach to structure is different here than it would be if you were a dualist. If you were a dualist, you'd have to ask questions about like, well, does patriarchy really exist? And then how would we know? And then we have to go out there and see if we can find patriarchy. If you are operating from a feminist perspective, it's not does patriarchy exist? It's patriarchy is a way of organizing these experiences, and it is a compelling way of organizing these experiences, which means that it's not just some arbitrary set of values that we have happened upon, but it has some traction. It has some purchase on things that are beyond just experience itself. The utility of a notion in organizing experience, 
particularly the experience of marginalization, is evidence that it is something other than just a useful oversimplification, more than just an ideal type. For a practicing feminist, patriarchy is not just an ideal type. For a practicing Du Boisian or critical race theorist, right, racial hierarchy is not just an ideal type. Instead, it touches on some broader potentiality, some broader formation. And that can be a legitimate object of knowledge in this sort of approach in a way that for an ideal type person, they would say, well, that's a neat ideal type, but it's not knowledge itself. Theory in a monist transfactual world is more like therapy. Reflexivity allows us to dispel illusion. Precisely because these notions that are, yes, useful for explanations, but are deeper than that, they touch something transfactual, it means they can be used as sources of critique. They can do what a strict Weberian would never do and actually engage in value criticism. So theory from a reflexive, critical perspective is not just an ordering of experience, and it's certainly not a representation of a mind-independently real world, but instead theory is a tool not just for producing abstract knowledge, but it's an instrument for producing social change by disclosing the ways in which things are organized, dispelling the kinds of ideologies and illusions that hold those hierarchies in place. That's what reflexive critical theory is for. That's what their explanations are for. And how does a reflexive explanation work? Reflexive explanations start off with that kind of self-location, which is not an optional add-on. It's not just some autobiographical irrelevancy that goes on at the beginning. If you're going to be engaged in a good piece of reflexive analysis, a good piece of critical analysis, self-location is absolutely important because it helps to contextualize what it is that you are doing. The perspective here needs to be marginal. You can't really write critical theory from the perspective of the hegemon <laughs> doesn't really work that way um, because you are interested here in using those epistemically privileged spaces from the margins as ways of explaining things that would not otherwise be explainable. Knowledge is a critique. Knowledge is produced as a criticism of social hierarchy and a call to change those things. It provokes a response the articulation of a good piece of critical knowledge provokes some kind of response from the power holders, from the hierarchy. And it is important as a critical theorist to pay attention to those effects. What happens when we articulate this and sort of release it out there into the world? Where does it go? What do we get as responses? How do we respond to those responses? Knowledge in that sense is a broader dialogue, not just with the research community, but beyond the research community into the general public. And so knowledge as pursued reflexively, because the goal is to bring about certain kinds of social transformation, the validity of those claims is wrapped up 
with the way that those claims encapsulate the experience of those to whom they are targeted. So again, with monist, we're operating in a world where knowledge is produced out of intersubjective sets of commitments. It's just that the point of those intersubjective commitments and what you do with them when you produce knowledge is a little different over in the critical reflexivity monist transfactual world than it is over in the analyticist instrumental uh, monist phenomenalist world. But both monist and both therefore different from the dualist approaches that we talked about earlier. I'm going to resist the temptation to come up with any sort of summary conclusion at this point. I think we will work on that a little bit during the discussion, which I think is where good conclusions always come from.